Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com I mean no one plans to get sick and yet here we are my name is Matthew Zachary I survived cancer a stroke and COVID-19 and somehow I'm still here I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello friends, welcome back to Out of Patience. A quick reminder before we get started, if you like the show, I hope you do, consider leaving me a review, a rating, a like, your choice. Up to you. On the show today, I welcome live here in studio my dear friend Liz Margulies. She is an LGBT cancer advocate and she has her hands in all the pots. She's been using them to stir things up for more than 30 years, working as a psychotherapist with a specialty in cancer, trauma, and sexuality. She's also an original LGBT cancer rights activist, and when four of her lesbian friends all died, of ovarian cancer, literally back-to-back within months of each other, she decided she had to do something. So she launched the National LGBT Cancer Network because the LGBT community not only has a harder time getting treatment, but sexual and gender minorities are also at a much higher risk of getting cancer than the general population. And she's here to explain why. She's loud, she's proud. Ladies and gentlemen, Liz Margulies. Liz Margulies. Oh, my God. In person, staring at you right here in the studio. I am so happy to see you. Oh, it's so great to be here. So you have been out and about in the potentially less horrible COVID land? Yes. In fact, I was supposed to leave next Wednesday for Greece. Is that gone now? It's gone now. The State Department changed it from reconsider travel to do not travel, bold red letters. Is this a thanks unvaxxed people hashtag? Yes. Really taking it for the team, aren't we? (laughs) Exactly. No good deed goes unpunished, as they say. When were you vaccinated? February. Wow, me too, really early on. How did you get to do it so early? I know people. No, no, I, I qualified under something that actually was important. I don't know how, but I got in early. I got it by my age. Really? Yes. I mean, aging- Wait, 49? 
Cute. <laughs> Cute. But you know, I think we're not supposed to think of that as a compliment anymore. I know. I know, right? Because there's nothing wrong with aging. Aging is a gift. I'm I'm slowly encroaching 50 and I'm looking forward. I never thought I'd make 40. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm 68. Yeah. And a half. And how many years out? How many years have I been out as a lesbian? Yeah. Um, I thought I was a late come outer, but I was 24. But I mean, that was the 80s? Um, it was the 70s. Yeah, that, that's a whole universe. My generation just remembers Ellen DeGeneres getting fired from her show because she dared even have her fictional character be right. out of the closet. Right. Wow. And I remember story. being furious with Rosie O'Donnell. Like, just come out. Right. People are watching. People like you. You could make a difference. Mm-hmm. No, when I came out in the 70s, I was an outlaw. And I really kind of loved it. Because I'm such the quintessential good girl. Got, you know, all my college papers written a week in advance. I was even a cheerleader in high school. I smoked weed, but I showed up for the games. Hey, the 70s. Exactly. <laughs> and so finally, I was a little bit of a bad girl. And so it's not just how corporate pride is now. It's how acceptable on the surface, like all things liberal, on the surface, it's totally normal. And I consider that a loss. Actually, so I have a armchair question. Sure. It was just pride. Has pride become the new pink ribbon? Is it overly done now? Has it lost its authenticity? Exactly. It's just all corporate sponsors. But we are a fighting and grousing people. And so a second movement has sprung up, and it's the Reclaim Pride. Ooh, I like that. And it's just people without a permit. Police, please keep your distance. We're not looking for your protection. In fact, your presence makes many of our people feel unsafe. So there are two marches now, and there will continue to be. I'm hearing like an allegory between the disdain for the pink ribbon when everything got hyper-commercialized. And it really was the young adult movement that rebelled. We don't want to be labeled with all this corporate bullshit, red M&Ms. Come on, give me a fucking break. Yeah, damn it. I'm colorblind. I got to buy. Okay. Pink blenders. Well, you know what? It's probably based on the cancer because every cancer has a color. Right. Um, Yes. And I also want to say that many lesbians and queer women have hated the pink forever, but just didn't have an organization to complain through because it's just a little girly for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My daughter, who's 11 now, she's growing up in an era where this is such a natural conversation that's not threatening. I'm really happy about that because I remember in like health economics in middle school, they were like, this is what it means to not be straight. And, you know, progress is something that only maybe people like us can take not for granted because we were there. Are we time capsules? I think it's called dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. Mesozoics. But we're carrying the history. And I think that's really important. Right. It really is. It really is. And many of the breast cancer activists in the 90s took so many cues from ACT UP. Did you know this? No, I didn't. But that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's not apples to apples, obviously, but we're all fruit. you know. <laughs> yes, especially us. <laughs> you can say that. I can tell the Jew jokes. I can tell a Jew joke. That's true. That's true. You can get away with it. I'm Jewish. Yes. We'll channel our inner chutzpah neuroses. Right. And fetching. And failing. Because we're proud of certain things, too. It's true. Yes. I wanted to just let the listeners know your relationship to me through the cancer world, because you were, you're, you're a pioneer. You did something that 
at the time I was unaware was even a thing that could be done. The voice of the gay community. Where did that gumption come from? Besides what we already established as your inner chutzpah. I had the unbelievable misfortune to have four really close friends die of ovarian cancer. And like, really, what are the odds of that? I either choose my friends poorly or there's something <laughs> or there's something happening here that was worth looking at. And I got a little part-time thing at the LGBT Community Center here in New York City. They got a Komen grant and wanted to start a support program for lesbians with cancer. And I said, I only know about this, you know, as a survivor of losing four of my dearest friends, not just four people I know. So I began to look into it, and it occurred to me that that was the wrong program, actually, that if you looked beneath the surface, this was not a lesbian breast cancer program. I mean, it is a lesbian breast cancer program, but every subpopulation of the LGBTQ plus community has increased risks, decreased screening rates, and additional challenges in survivorship. So I kind of learned on the job, starting with taking my dog to Barnes and Noble and sitting in the how to start a nonprofit. Rest aisle. in peace, Barnes and Noble. And I talked to people who were working in the cancer field who I knew were out as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or in rare cases, transgender. And I even came to see you. Do you remember that? I do. I think we met at French Roast on 6th Avenue and 11th Street. I can't believe you remember that. I do. I mean, there's a hole in my head from surgery that's filled with like bacon at this point. Your name again? It was that important to me. That's why I remember. Wow. How old was I? I was in my 50s. I had been a psychotherapist and I considered myself an activist before then, but I worked for myself. I did things with other people. I didn't know what a deliverable was on a grant. I right. knew nothing. But it just seemed like this was needed. And so I sat at my kitchen table and started putting things together and talking to people and knocking on doors and calling people regularly and ultimately got a little money. I think what's really unique about your choice to take on this activism role wasn't by merit of your personal condition. It was by proxy to the conditions of people around you in your life that you cared for. Yes. Many nonprofits, many initiatives are started by people like me. I went through shit. I want to make it suck less for the next me. Did you have any sense of like, but I'm not a survivor in any conversations? Very rarely. Good. Very rarely. I think I was clearly there and my heart was in it and I'm part of the community. I think if I was straight and not a cancer survivor, people would have questioned me more. But that someone else has the energy to do this because cancer is kind of debilitating and time consuming and tiring. And so to expect survivors to do it is asking the people with the least energy and the people who need to focus on their health the most. I had the extra to do it. I remember when the young adult cancer movement just got started. The words young adult cancer were never put together before in research papers. There was no code for it. It didn't exist. And once that became established, Along came the, well, why are you so special conversations? And we had to come up with like a polite response, which was like, well, we're not better or worse than pediatrics and older adults. We're just different. Here's why. And that really established almost like this flow chart that if a young adult 
and a teenager, young adult and black, young adult and gay, young adult and rich. It really did set a brand new precedent in the annals of survivorship that identified you as a person first and all the shit in Michigas that you got behind you and the baggage you were born with and then the cancer on top of it. Was that your experience? Yes, but I first want to say I don't even have the data that you had because the cancer registries are collecting information about race and about age, but they are still not collecting information about gender identity or sexual orientation. So I can look at like the California health survey that they do and see that more people who identify as LGBT report ever having had a diagnosis of cancer. But I don't have national statistics like you do. So I'm still fighting to say we are overrepresented. I can say, for example, that we use tobacco products, including vaping, at rates that are 68% higher than the general population. But I cannot tell you that we have more lung cancer. I can tell you that lesbians have what's considered the densest cluster of risk factors for breast cancer, less likely to have a child before age 30, more likely to smoke, more likely to drink, and more likely to have a high-fat diet or a high body mass index. But I can't really tell you that we are more likely to get breast cancer. You know, two plus one equals three. Right. But with science, you can't extrapolate like that. Is there um, an extrapolation that the reasons that these comorbidities exist kin to, but not apples to apples with the communities of color, that there's so much more social oppression, that you are under so much more stress than the normal privileged white, straight, cis male? I think what we're talking about, the bigger picture here, is that our identity matters. That when people think about cancer and cancer care, they think they're talking about science and medicine. And there is no separating the person who has the diagnosis out from the treatment's success and failure. In fact, we see that LGBT people report less satisfaction with their cancer care. Now, maybe if we just looked at the doctor's records, their scans are clean, their blood work is whatever, but their experience is terrible. And it's the experience that matters. That's what patient-centered care is all about. Well, we'll get to that jargon in just a sec. We're going to take a quick break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. 
you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So one of the fascinating not-so-Captain-obvious moments of the past 15 years is having the oncologist first ask you what's important to you and learn who you are and then look at biology and options for care. But again, to your point, the checkboxes didn't ask you for sexual orientation. And is it fair to think that if they did, people wouldn't really want to fill that out? That's what straight people think. But actually, there is a study about this, and it turns out we're dying to tell you. Wow, that's awesome. They interviewed people in the emergency department, which is, let's face it, where you're at your most vulnerable. Yeah. And they asked LGBT people, if asked, would you come out? And 90% said yes. And then they asked the providers, would you ask? And 77% said no. Wow. Because they were afraid it would be intrusive. Like you're thinking about your broken arm. You're thinking about that pain in your gut. You don't want to be answering this. I can understand that, though. I could see how perception of intrusion of something so deeply personal to you that isn't a choice may be completely based in institutional ignorance and sort of systemic bias in the medical profession. But sometimes it is a choice. And you can't treat my arm if you don't know who I am. I could hide it, but I don't want to. I want you to know me. In order to trust you, I have to know that you are okay with who I am. Because it's not just what happens to me. It's who's here by my side with me. It's who we're going through cancer with is different. And that's a question that's rarely asked. People assume that like your parents are helping you or your significant other or your spouse. And that's just not true in my community. Again, going back to the AIDS epidemic, we saw that we took care of each other. And in the general population, probably you already know this, so forgive me, one out of six people is an unpaid caregiver to somebody, and most of those six are women. In the LGBTQ plus community, one out of three people is a caregiver, and it's um, equally divided between men and women. So we are we're caring not just for each other, we're caring for our neighbors. We are right. the people who take care of other people. It's the genuine mishpach. Yes. Do you and want for, to define that for, for your people? For the non-Jews in the audience, there's a congenital instant powdered family when you're part of these types of tribes. Yes. And because many people have been rejected by their family of origin because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, they have to turn to their chosen family to take care of them. And forms don't give you room to say who your chosen family is. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm still stuck on that incredible data you cited before about willingness to disclose and hesitancy to ask. Has any of that trickled into practice? Well, I try to sprinkle it into every training that I give. People are afraid to ask. It's like, I know I'm gay. You're not going to like remind me of something I didn't know about. It's okay to ask who I am. It's not okay to expect me as a patient to then train you. I have a psychotherapy client who is a transgender woman, and she had severe abdominal pain and went to the hospital. And the doctor said, 
oh, I'm afraid it might be an ectopic pregnancy. And she said, it's not. <laughs> I'm trans. Yeah. And he said, you're going to have to explain that to me. Right. And she said, could you take care of me now? And I'll explain it to you another time. So she should never have to explain it to him. I was once part of a research study on the pain scale. The purpose was to help patients better disclose their pain. Yes. And the challenge that was identified by EMR people was that the stock market goes up is good, but pain goes up is bad. So how do you indicate more pain when up is bad? And it took so many years to even toss that simple thing into an EMR intake form. Has there been any progress in adding gender and sex to intake forms when you're going to even a basic walk-in clinic, let alone a hospital for cancer. And let's just add here that people can choose not to answer it. Right. That that's people's right to not come out. But should it be there? Well, it's already there in most cases. It's just not being used. Like mm. Epic, which is used in many hospitals for hospital records, electronic records, they have a field for sexual orientation and gender identity. But people going back to that study are afraid to ask. And I think that people have expressed, what if someone says, like, what, do I look like a lesbian? Like, they're so afraid to offend mm. the straight woman in this example. But I think in the early days of HIV, if someone was going to take your blood and they put gloves on, you'd feel like, oh, you think I have HIV? Right. Now it's a universal precaution. So it says nothing about how the phlebotomist sees me. So I think that if people, providers, front desk staff say, I'm not going to ask you a set of questions that I ask everybody. I love that you want to just create very basic level setting language that puts a little more confidence in needing to know this information without creating fear of offending somebody. To mitigate that at a moment of vulnerability is really important. Yes. And it could be an open-ended question as well. Like, that might not be the most important thing about somebody. The most important thing that they need you to know to be their provider might be something else. Like, it might be about their race, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status. Because going back to something you said earlier, all these things impact the LGBTQ plus cancer risk and experience. Because I listed things like the lesbian breast cancer risk were based on things that look like personal choice. But we are twice as likely as a community to live in poverty and not have health insurance. Twice as likely to not have health insurance. It's really hard to get cancer screening and do anything. Not to mention previous negative experiences in the healthcare system drive people away. So it's my guess, again, I can't prove it, that cancer is caught at a later stage in this community because people are not going to the doctor regularly. Right. I remember a time that there was a revolt in the lung cancer community that at intake, they were asked, do you smoke? And like most didn't, especially young women. And even today, smoking is lower than ever in younger communities and lung cancer in young women is up. Are they still asking you, do you smoke? So is there a Liz method to ask that question more effectively? And if it is an LGBTQ cancer patient who didn't smoke, does that just pile on the fear and the stigma? It all piles on. And it piles on as a group 
my community drinks and takes drugs at much higher rates. Again, this is a response to the stress and stigma yeah. of living as sexual and gender minorities. But later in treatment, once people are out, it can be hard for them to get pain meds because there's an assumption that they're going to abuse them. So we're an anthropologic sort of social science question. Now that we have marriage equality, has this country evolved? Are we in a better place in general writ large for the LGBTQ community? Better, yes. I don't think we're halfway there, though. Mm -hmm. I think people assume that if you can get married, that you'll be okay. But in a great number of states in this country, you can still be fired for being LGBT or Q. You can be denied a hotel room. You can be fired from your job. We do not have protections like that. And every gay person knows this as they travel around the country. Can I hold your hand here? Maybe not. We also have on November 20th every year, Trans Day of Remembrance, because I think 386 trans people have been killed so far this year simply because they're trans. And most of those are trans women of color. It is very dangerous to be a trans woman of color. People think it's easy to be trans. It is not, even if you're Wait, not. Wait, who thinks it's easy? I People can, think it's, it's a fad. Oh my God. Now everybody's doing it. Now everybody's trans. But someone who was assigned male at birth and then comes out as trans is giving up a great deal of privilege. And they went through the world thinking that they could do and be more of who they wanted and suddenly they're in great danger. No, trans people are using tobacco at much higher rates. Actually, bisexuals, that I think is surprising since Woody Allen said he became bisexual to double his chances of having a date on Saturday night. But it's actually on every health disparity you look at, except weight, bisexuals fare worse. They're not really trusted by the straight people or the gay people, and it's really stressful. And that's why they use tobacco at the highest rates. That is fascinating insights. And I, I, we look at cancer, how far we come, and yet how far to go. It's a totally different and yet slightly similar right. narrative here because it's a moving target. Yes. And what we're seeing now is, I forget how many LGBTQ people there are, but over half of them identify as bisexual. So we tend to forget about bisexual people, but they are the largest group. What we also see among young people is more and more non-binary people. So just when you think you got the LGBTQ letters lined up in your mind, the categories begin to expand. So non-binary people are people who feel that their gender identity is not expressed by either male or female. It might be neither. It might be both. It might be some days one, some days the other. And what is changing in the blue states Parents are better about allowing their kids to be whoever they want. So the kid says, I think I'm a boy. And they're like, okay. And I see more and more trans kids coming out at much younger ages, meaning they're not suffering the way that people who had to wait to come out to be out of the house and go through puberty. With puberty blockers, you can just spare kids so much. Right. Are we in like a new age of coming out? I think it's really about age and generation. I think the younger people, and I bet this is true about your kids too, they're just talking about gender identity, aren't they? They don't care. It's it just nothing. It's, it's, it's natural. Like, they're, they're internet kids. 
this is just what they're going to grow up into, and that's fine with me. But it's the people who are older than they are who are still the providers of medical care in this country. Right. And they are not there yet. In fact, there was a 2016 study of first-year medical students. 50% showed an explicit bias against LGBT people and 80% implicit bias. So it is still there. But do I have confidence that things are changing? Yes. That we cannot separate the body or the tumor from the person who has it. I start a lot of my trainings with a question for my audience and I make them raise their hand. And I say, is a tumor a tumor a tumor? Or does it matter who the tumor spent Valentine's Day with? And most people think a tumor is a tumor. And I then spend the rest of the time telling them that it absolutely matters whose body the tumor happened in and who that person identifies as, who's that person's family, who's their support system. And I'm not saying the surgeon would do anything different in removing that tumor, but the surgeon needs to know who that person's going home with and who's going to take care of them. And as a cliffhanger to part two of this conversation, with the dawn of genomics and precision medicine, the tumor doesn't matter. Your DNA matters, which is irrespective of your personal choices in the world. Right. My DNA matters. But if you and I are going to interact about my DNA, you have to know whose body that DNA is living in. Agreed. The human being themselves is what's going to matter most to an outcome. That's right. I mean, look at what we know about placebos. Right. And I think that's the next untapped thing. I mean, placebos are amazing. And if we could give somebody the, quote, sugar pill, unquote, and not have any bad side effects, that would be great. But we find that, A, blue pills work best, and that it's all about the way the doctor gives it to you, decides whether the placebo works. Liz Margulies is a clinical social worker and the founder of the National LGBT Cancer Network, which you can find online at cancer-network.org. Thanks for coming on the show. Way more to come. Yes, I will be back. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seely, Jen Orange, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seely. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.